This podcast was sponsored by the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies at Yeshiva University. Whether you are a student with a professional interest in academic Jewish studies, a prospective educator in Jewish secondary schools who wants to make a difference in the lives of your students and your community, or simply a person who seeks intellectual challenge and growth, the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies is the place for you. For more information, visit yu.edu slash revel. My name is Stu Halpern. I'm the senior advisor to the provost here at Yeshiva University, and I'm honored to welcome today's esteemed guest, Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, a triple alum of Yeshiva University, Yeshiva College grad, Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies grad, and a Ritz alum, who is the founding director of ATID, the Academy for Torah Initiatives and Directions in Jewish Education, located in Jerusalem, and the director of its webyeshiva.org program. He is an associate editor of the journal Tradition, series editor of the Agnon Library, published by Toby Press, and director of research at the Agnon House in Jerusalem. He has published widely on Jewish thought, literature, and education. Prior to his Aliyah in 1994, Rabbi Sachs taught at Central, the Yeshiva University High School for Girls. Upon arriving in Israel, he was the director of Yeshivat HaMivtar in Efrat, and he has taught in various yeshivot and midrashot over the years. Welcome, Rabbi Sachs. Nice to be back at Yeshiva University. We're thrilled to have you. So tell us a little bit about who Shai Agnon was and what first drew you to translate his works recently completed in a 15-volume collection. Agnon was, of course, the 1966 uh, uh, Nobel laureate in literature. He was the first Israeli to receive a Nobel. He was the first and to this date only Hebrew author to to be so feted. Uh, He was the master of modern Hebrew literature. He was born in Galicia, uh, which was then part of the eastern reaches of the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1887, although he always claimed he was born on Tisha of 1888. This was part of the many layers of mythologizing of his own biography. He was born as Shmuel Yosef Chachkis. Agnon is a pen name, which he adopted as his actual uh, name uh, upon arriving in Eretz Yisrael in 1908, around the age of 20, as part of the Second Aliyah. And uh, after a stint of a number of years spent in Germany, uh, where he stayed over during the war, he met his wife, he had children, he came under the patronage of the uh, German-Jewish businessman Shlomo Zalman Schoken, who was one of the patrons of the uh, of the Jewish revival in uh, Germany at that uh, at that time, and he had this uh, lifelong arrangement with Shokin and with the Shokin Publishing House, in which he received a stipend and was able to commit himself fully uh, to his work. He returns to Jerusalem in 1924, uh, where he spends uh, the rest of his life, uh, most of it in a little house in the outskirts of Talpiot, uh, which today is the Agnon House, which is a center and a museum uh, dedicated to his legacy. And uh, in 1966, he, he wins the Nobel. But even before that, he was the 
the grand old man of Hebrew letters uh, in in Israel, and then with the arrival of the Nobel, he becomes uh, something more of an international figure. Uh, Agnon was uh, had been translated already from the 19-teens and 20s, uh, first into German, uh, later into English, very early on into English, because uh, Shokin uh, understood that the way to promote his in-house author, the way to get him noticed by, let's say, some judges sitting in Stockholm is to translate him. In Hebrew alone, he would be uh, limited to the, the ghetto of, uh, of Hebrew readers. Uh, and there were attempts to you know, promote him on a larger scale. Uh, in America, there, was, uh, there were efforts made to, uh, succe- successful efforts to have one of his novels sele- in English selected as a choice of the Book of the Month Club. Uh, in the 1930s, uh, a long novel called Achnasat uh, Kala, in English as The Bridal Canopy, which is a description of the early 19th century uh, Hasidim and Jewish tetlach of uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, I always imagine the the uh, housewife in Iowa, a uh, member of the Book of the Month Club or the Literary Guild of America, a Book of the Month Club, receiving this book and not exactly understanding you know, what this, what this is. And it's at a time in the 19, early 1930s when that world was still very much extant. Uh, to one degree or another, with with a variety of transformations, but it's it's before the the Shoah. Uh, the idea that there are these shtetlach and uh, old world Jews still uh, walking around uh, villages of of Poland and uh, you know is, is is fascinating. I came to know Agnon as a high school student. Uh, I was uh, raised in a, a somewhat uh, somewhat uh, assimilated uh, Jewish. Family, uh, Jewish family with, uh, with a sense of Jewish identity, but not very uh, connected to Jewish learning or or Jewish uh, ritual or culture. And in high school, when I became interested in things Jewish uh, through a variety of influences, uh, one of my grandmothers, who was the most, let's say, the most culturally Jewish. I mean, generally, she was a very educated woman for for her for her day and age. Um, she was the type of person that if a Hebrew author in Jerusalem was awarded the Nobel, she would have taken notice. And she bought for me uh, a collection called 21 Stories. When an author uh, wins, the, when a foreign author wins a Nobel, uh, an American publisher will always rush out a collection of his work in translation to capitalize on, on sales. And this is exactly what happened. Uh, Random House put out uh, after the prize a collection. They anthologized the existing short stories that one had been published here in commentary and one in some local Jewish newspaper and all over the place. And they bundled them together. It's a very uneven collection uh, because it's 21 random stories, short stories, out of the collected works, which today posthumously uh, contains 23 volumes. Uh, And it's not completely representative of his overall project. Uh, there are certain things that are overemphasized. If you only know him from this short collection, you'll get it. But even then as a young age, even then at a young age, I was able, and again, at the time, I obviously could not have read him in the original Hebrew. Uh, I could not even, had I been able to read him in the original Hebrew, all of his references, his allusions, his intertextual, what really is the central phenomena of his work, this this intertextual weaving of the entirety of Jewish uh, literature and rabbinic literature into modern storytelling would have been lost on me. But in all cases, I was able to identify that he was saying something very profound about the modern condition, 
about the tensions that are inherent in Jewish life today uh, as we've made the transition from the old world to the new, as transitions were made from European Jewry to his center of focus, which was which was the land of Israel. And this was at a time I had not yet ever been to, to Israel, but I understood that he was discussing these things. And something of the power of the, even in translation, and so much is lost in translation, obviously, but even in translation, the, the power of those themes comes, comes through. And I became a, a lifelong reader of, of Agnon. I think my second volume of Agnon, I purchased here at what was once the Yeshiva University bookstore on the corner on Amsterdam Avenue, uh, which was another, uh, at that time, recently released translation. And I continued to read in, in English. And when I went on Aliyah in 1994, I attempted to read Agnon in, uh, in Hebrew, and I was bested. My Hebrew was not yet good enough, and it took a number of years until I was able to do that. Then a number of years ago, I had uh, you know one of these curious experiences where I realized I had read really, you know, dilettantishly uh, quite a bit of Agnon, and I had an idea that I could I could read the whole thing, that it would be possible to read the whole collected works, all twenty three volumes. Not exactly uh, you understand, not exactly like Dafyomi, uh, but that like all of these immersion projects, uh, you know, some people do that and they would blog about it, but I had the good taste not to blog. <laughs> Uh, you know, like that woman who decided to cook every recipe in the Julia Child cookbook or all these types of projects. And I realized that like all these immersion projects, you learn a lot about the thing you immersed yourself in, but then the whole thing really becomes a lens on which to like learn something about yourself. And then long story short, I I, uh, I ended up uh, connected to the Beit Agnon where they were looking for somebody to teach a course in English, and of course, the really the best way to learn any some anything is to is to begin to teach it, and that's how I got involved with uh, the the teaching and study of Agnon, and then through that at the Toby Press, which is an imprint of the Korean Publishers, uh, as part of their attempt to bring fine Hebrew literature to a broader world, uh, the publisher Matthew Miller uh, was looking to he'd already done one volume. Of, of Agnon uh, stories. He was looking to take on something. He didn't imagine that it was going to be 15 volumes. <laughs> and uh, once I came on board as the series editor, the, the, uh, the project uh, grew in the, in the telling until we've put out 15. It's not all of uh, Agnon, but it's the essential Agnon in, uh, in translation. And, and maybe in the future, we'll come back to it and do uh, a little more. I have a wish list of the stories that are not yet translated, but are most uh, pressing or most in need of translation. But our series really did um, succeed in rounding out. It's, it's really interesting. Some stories were translated 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 years ago that are not particularly interesting stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not central in Agnon. For whatever reason, a translator trans- And there are other stories that, according to all opinions, are the essential st- stories that were translated into a variety of languages decades ago, but somehow had not been translated into, into English. And those stories, the real essential uh, works of Agnon uh, that had not been translated, we managed to do mm-hmm. in, uh, in our series. So I'm very interested. For the uninitiated, what is the essential Agnon? Should you buy all 15 volumes? I'm sure you would say yes. But which do you start with? What what is People what is your initiation? People ask me that question, and uh, if you're reading, in, if somebody who's reading in Hebrew, uh, the answer comes out different. 
because the the volumes themselves are organized differently. In other words, our volumes don't, except for the except for the novels where one novel translates as an English volume. The bulk of the series and the bulk of Agnon are collections of short stories or collections of novellas. And our series, those volumes don't correspond one to one to a to a Hebrew volume, um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but part of it depends on on your inclination. Agnon wrote in a whole variety of genres. He wrote from the microscopic short story, uh, things that appear to the reader to be mere uh, pious retellings of Hasidic tales. I always tell people, if you read Agnon and you think you're just reading a retelling of a Hasidic tale, you're not reading between the lines. You're missing something. Mm -hmm. You don't understand the degree to which it's undergone a transformation at Agnon's uh, pen. Mm -hmm. uh, to long novels, uh, even modern, uh, modernistic novels. I tend to think that his greatest strength was in the novella. Um, the main topic of Agnon's work is the main, the main characteristic is this kind of intertextual weaving. His accomplishment was in taking the entirety of the Jewish bookshelf from the Bible and the Midrash and Chazal, the Talmud, the Agadah, uh, through uh, the, the medieval Hebrew literature, medieval rabbinic literature, medieval Hebrew poetry, uh, Hasidic literature, I'm sure I'm missing a few stops along the way, Hasidic literature, the literature of the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, Yiddish uh, literature, distilling it all and pouring it into the mold of, of, of modern literature. And in so doing, his writing is not merely using rabbinic turns of phrase. His writing is in dialogue with all that came before him. That's what Gershom Shalom called him the last Hebrew classic, in the sense that he was the last author who was doing that, where there's not merely quoting, where there's not merely what we call melitza, where you'll pick up a, a phrase, a biblical turn of phrase, a biblical rhythm to enrich uh, your contemporary writing, but where the, the product produced now is an extension. In the same way, Lahavdil, that Midrash is in dialogue with Tanakh. Right? It's not merely coming as a commentary, but it's in dialogue. It's trying to echo certain themes. Sometimes it's trying to subvert certain things, certain themes in the in the original text in which it's in which it's playing off of. And in that regard, you know, Agnon is particularly rich, and that's you know part of my argument when you know when you're tasked with producing a series of books, you know, a, a translator or an editor, or, and certainly not a publisher, uh, cannot choose their their audience. Publishers' interest in selling books to to everyone <laughs> that will buy, and I'm surprised by the people I got last week. I got an email from a reader in China mm -hmm. and a reader in Saudi Arabia. Hmm. Uh, but you know, my concern has been to try to bring this to the attention of people in our community. Mm -hmm. uh, in some ways, Agnon, I always say, Agnon was the most modern Orthodox mm -hmm. of readers mm -hmm. um, of writers. Um, his concerns are concerns that are still very, very central to ours. Not exclusively. I don't want to be too uh, particularistic. Mm -hmm. um, but his concerns, I think, are particularly uh, germane to to our community, um, and you know that's why I try to commend him to to our to our friends and neighbors. Uh, not always successfully. 
Um, that's a larger question of the role of reading and literature and culture, which you know we're always fighting this this uphill uh, uphill battle. Yeah. On that note, an article you presented, or a paper you presented a few years ago at Yeshiva University, you cite Agnon himself, or, or better, one of his recurring characters, lamenting that quote today's reader is no longer content with reading for pleasure; he expects to find a new message in every work. End quote. So you've alluded to messages that Agnon contained in his writings, what messages can the uninitiated expect to find in Agnon's works? And how do you think Agnon himself felt about those messages, about uh, those issues? That's interesting. That quote, which is placed in the mouth of a character called Chemdat, who's a, a minor character who makes kind of cameo appearances in a variety of Agnon's stories, he's understood to be the most autobiographical projection of the author himself into his, into his own work. But the continuation of that quote is, is the answer to your question. In other words, Chemdat says, I, I'm not recalling this uh, by heart. Uh, you and I have the same text in front of us. Mm-hmm. Chemdat replied, I didn't come to answer the question, where are you going? Though I do sometimes answer the question, where did you come from? Now, there's this sense of his writing. And to be clear, Agnon's first concern was an artistic concern. His first impulse in writing is an aesthetic one, to produce a literary text. He's not writing the Mora Nevuchim. He's not writing the Mesil Asisharim. He's trying to produce modern literature that would be recognized on a world stage. But the great concerns that he has in depicting this world, the world of Eastern European Jewry, the world of principally the world of uh, Eretz Yisrael at the time of the second Aliyah when he first arrives. There's, there's, no, there's very, very, very little discussion of the Shoah. There's very little discussion, well, almost no, almost no discussion of Medinat Yisrael, the state established in 1948 in Agdon, even though Agdon was writing up until the end of the 1960s because the outer limit of the world he's depicting is the first decade of the, the teens, the 19-teens here in, uh, here in Eretz Yisrael. And he's more or less, with certain deviations, he's more or less depicting a world over the course of about 100 years, from the beginning of the 19th to the beginning of the 20th century in, in uh, Galicia, in Eretz Yisrael, in Yafo, in Yerushalayim, and a certain section that uh, that depicts the German world that he encountered in the years of uh, World War World War One. Although that's a, that's a minority of the of the corpus, and that question of where have you come from uh, in in this essay in this Orthodox form essay, I, I again quote uh, Shalom Agnon and Gershom Shalom had a, had a close personal relationship. Uh, a close personal relationship, not without its attentions and disagreements, as as most people who had relationships with uh, Shalom uh, report, um, and and Agnon as well. And neither man was always neither man was always easy to get along with, but they had a close relationship going back to when they first meet in the teens in in Berlin. And Shalom says that Agnon always uh, gave the impression of being someone who who was standing at the crossroads you know, Janus-like, looking both backward and forward, to a new generation, Asher lo yada, everything that had come before, who, who was to one degree or another at a remove from tradition, either by choice or through a lack of familiarity with those classical texts. And 
Shalom depicts Agnon as saying, uh, you know, he portrays Agnon as if Agnon uh, was intending to say, those of you that no longer have access to that world, uh, you can you can get it transformed in my work, so that his work itself is a form of translation, uh, not translation from one language to another, but a form of cultural translation to people who now the question I'm often asked how you know by uh, chauvinistic Israelis how could you possibly translate Agnon and said how could anybody read Agnon in you know and this is the same thing that uh, you know in London they think about Shakespeare and in Moscow they think about uh, Tolstoy the question sadly is not so much how can you read Agnon in translation but how can you read Agnon in Hebrew today there are unfortunately so many Israelis that are at such a remove from the knowledge of the world and the texts that Agnon is depicting and playing off of that they feel alienated from from the text. If they're alienated from uh, the Gemara and the Midrash and the Chumash and the Rashi, then they they also feel that same sense of distance from from Agnon. There, there's a there's a mistake I think that people in Israel have because their associations with Agnon come from encountering it on the Bagrut, on the on the matriculation exams. And just like so many uh, students here uh, develop certain feelings maybe about Shakespeare and they're not going to be so anxious to uh, to encounter the bard later in life for pleasure reading, uh, may not even have the collected uh, works, uh, you know, on their library at home uh, because it was something that was shoved down their throat, you know, in high school. And so too uh, in Israel. But it's not true what uh, what people people feel that um, you can't read Agnon in Hebrew because the language is too antiquated. Uh, it's absolutely not true. There is no there is no Israeli high school student that can't make his way through Agnon. And if he finds a word that he that he is unfamiliar with, if he finds a concept that he's unfamiliar with, a rabbinic concept, uh, something from Jewish ritual, he, he has access to the collected wisdom of civilization in his pocket. <laughs> and you can look things up. Uh, and uh, Speaking of which, how much detective work was involved in your part when uh, there were allusions? Yeah. Did you always, to use a colloquial word, hop the allusions? Or did you have a feeling sometimes, okay, he must be alluding to some midrash somewhere yeah, and need to yeah, go digging? Yeah. Uh, well, in other words, this brings up one of the features of our series, which are the annotations. For a variety of reasons in Hebrew, there are almost no annotated editions. This has to do with certain choices that the Shokan Publishing House makes. But our English editions are, are all annotated, and some are really quite thoroughly annotated, even with illustrations. Uh, uh, so much so that I've met Israelis who told me that they are they're using my edition in English for the annotations for the perush that it supplies to the to the Hebrew text um and for, I mean for me for my own personal interests this was what what uh, you know particularly uh, drew this to me uh, to a certain degree the source work today is very easy we live in a world with uh, the, the Barilan Sidiram and uh, all the other resources so it's possible to very easily ferret out those types of things but there were all types of uh, references historical references um, things that Agnon maybe took for granted uh, that people would know or things that he maybe took for granted that people wouldn't know, but it doesn't really matter so much. 
um, and uh, there's a novel set in uh, Germany uh, during in Leipzig uh, during World War One called Bechanutoshel Mar Lublin, which we translated as in Mr. Lublin's store. And it's a very precise description of, it's kind of like uh, James Joyce's Ulysses. It all takes place on one particular day. We even did some good detective work and we determined precisely what day that was. And just this past January, it was 100 years. It was a day in January, 1918. Uh, so this past January, we had the 100th anniversary, not of the book, but the 100th anniversary of the day on which the book takes place. Um, and everything. If Agnon tells you something about a particular uh, particular trolley line in Leipzig or Berlin, it's precise. We could determine exactly which which train this was. At a certain point, uh, there's no end to the matter, and you know we had certain limitations of exactly how much we could do. But there's mountains upon mountains. Uh, the the novelist uh, the novelist Dara Horn, uh, who wrote a very lovely review of the series uh, in a Tablet Magazine described reading Agnon as going on an archaeological expedition. You dig down a layer and you find another layer beneath or, you know, peeling the layers off of an onion. And uh, so to a certain degree, that's, you know, that's what it is. There's, uh, there's uh, in, even in the source work, when you've identified the source, you haven't always gotten to the bottom of the matter the one example I like to give is, uh, without going into the, the depths of it, uh, Agnon has a novella called in Hebrew, Bidmiya Meha. Bidmiya Meha, uh, or Bidmiya Mai, is a Hebrew phrase. It appears one time in Tanakh, in Sefer Yeshayahu. It's in the mouth of Chizkiyahu Melech when he feels he's, when he's describing his near-death experience. And he calls out to God, and he, he says that he's going to be chopped down, bidmiyamai, in the, in the, we translated it as in the prime of life. So bidmiyameha, feminized for the character of that novella, we called in the prime of her life. But the meaning of this phrase in Tanakh is not completely clear. In the context, it's clear what it means, but what the etymology is and how it comes to that idiom. In the Dat Mikra, he surveys all of the interpretive possibilities. It's a story about uh, uh, the only example of an Agnon story with a female narrator. It's a young woman narrating her own story, which begins with the death of her mother. So, my mother died in the prime of her life. So the detective either knows that verse in in uh, in Ishayahu, or a quick Google or Barilan search will immediately turn it up, and you think you found what you're doing, but you haven't at all. At most, you've only seen the tip of the iceberg. When Chizkiyahu Melech is describing his near-death experience, he was very very sick. In the world of the Navi. Somebody who's sick near death, the sickness is usually interpreted as a punishment for sin. Chizkiyahu does tshuva, and he is saved. But the Navi does not tell us what that sin was. Why was Chizkiyahu being punished? For that, you need the Gemara in Brachot. The Gemara in Brachot fills it all in. 
And it explains doing that kind of uh, Talmudic mathematics that we sometimes encounter uh, Rashi quoting to figure out the distance and dates between two non-dated events in, in Tanakh, that at this point, Chizkiyahu had not yet had children. And he had made a choice not to bring children into the world, says the Gemara, because he knew that he would have a descendant that would, what's the contemporary phrase, go off the derech. And he wanted to avoid that. For that, he was punished. And that's why he was brought near to death. Only when you know this Talmudic background, this, this Talmudic reading between the lines, do you understand why Agnon chose that phrase? Because the story that Agnon writes is one of a messed up family in a very similar regard, of a kind of breakdown of the normal way that family and parents and children and bringing a new generation and how one generation is meant to bring in the next generation, how it's all meant to work. And Agnon's story is not connected just through this borrowing of these two words from the Pasuk, but by everything that's hanging by a thread underneath it. Uh, he, the theme of the modern story is engaged with the rabbinic reading of the biblical text of old. So in that regard, it's a kind of continuation. It's a kind of another layer of, uh, well, I'll say in listeners can't see the quotation marks, uh, another layer of midrash engaged in that text. So that's part of the detective work of, of, um, of uncovering, uncovering the sources. It has to go beyond just you know, the quick Google Mm-hmm. Um, and then finding all the realia and finding uh, uh, all the other types of annotations. Uh, the stories are peppered with references to historical characters that appear as literary characters. Who are these people? Uh, uh, you know, what was their biography? What are they doing there? Um, all types of earlier layers of modern Hebrew that are no longer in use. Uh, you know, part of Agnon's accomplishment was he was helping to craft modern Hebrew as it was flowing out of his pen. Mm. But modern Hebrew didn't all flow in one straight line. There were zigs and zags, and there were debates about, should we use this word or should we use that word? And Agnon was involved in those debates in the uh, Hebrew Language Academy together with Bialik. Uh, uh, he hated uh, Ben Yehuda uh, and uh, you know how, how to craft new words. And there's a, a whole vocabulary of words that Agnon uses. Uh, for example, in all variety of places, Agnon describes Jews sitting at the table. And whenever Agnon wants to satirize Jews, he always shows them sitting at the table, tucking in for a meal. It's like the perfect you know, satire of the Jewish family uh, sitting around uh, the table and eating. Uh, it sits down. They sit down with a nice warm bowl of rotev. And I said they drink, they, they eat their bowl of rotev with a spoon. So the contemporary reader says, what, they're eating a bowl of, of gravy? No, rotev was a, an earlier word for what we call soup. Marak, the word that everybody knows today as the Hebrew word, that's a later term. That Agnon didn't like that term. He thought the proper word should be, should be rotev, uh, you know, which could mean gravy or could mean soup. Uh, so, in, so only if you know that do you understand what's going on, you know, what it is that these people are, that these people are, are, are eating. Um, and a whole variety of things. In most cases, even to the Hebrew reader, 
um, it doesn't interflow. You know, there are all types of things we read and you don't exactly – they're eating something. Mm-hmm. You know, for the purpose of understanding the plot of the story, it doesn't matter what they're eating at that, mm-hmm. at that point. Uh, but for the annotator, you have to get it right. You have right. to know precisely what each uh, thing is. And a couple of minutes ago, you alluded to the Agno and Tale as the modern story, quote unquote. Well, now one could make the argument that we're in 2018, we're living a different modern story. You've alluded to, you just alluded to, language gaps between Agnon's era and our own. So how relevant is Agnon to today's Jew, today's Israeli Jew, American Jew, if he's offering satire back then, how much should we care about that now? What is the case for Agnon now? Right. So I think that um, like all, all works that become classics, you don't become a classic unless there's some kind of enduring message. We still teach Shakespeare. With all the problems of teaching Shakespeare, we still teach Shakespeare because there's something universal and and eternal there that readers, we hope, will expose to our students in high school. We hope people, you know, will you know will be able to engage with that. And by and large, he's had a good long uh, he's had a good long run. Uh, old old William was he ever in Book of the Month? Though? I don't think so. I'm not sure. There's still time. Yeah. Um, maybe Oprah will. Pick him, um, and, and Agnon is certainly in that in that category. It doesn't mean that every single story in the twenty three volumes has that power. I mean, let's be let's be let's be realistic. But the really great works really do have that, and they do resonate, and they do. When you see, uh, you know, at the hands of a, at the hands of a talented educator, when you see students uh, in in ninth grade and tenth grade when they first read a story like Tihila, uh, the power, the pathos, uh, you know, of that, you know, perhaps his most most beloved story, you you really do see that these are classic works that you know that stand that test of being able to communicate, you know, its message. Um, a few minutes ago, I described, you know, what I think Agnon's message is, particularly, you know, in, in our world. But I think that's a it's a universal it's a universal message. Uh, you know, as I said, I get email from people in very far flung places, mm-hmm. you know, who've encountered him. Obviously, they're reading him in, in translation, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and they recognize that that power of what he's doing. You know, he, he's you know he writes novels that are universal. His mm-hmm. uh, He's got a novel called Sipur uh, Pashut in Hebrew, in English as uh, a simple story, mm-hmm. which is uh, it's a kind of uh, Judaized tale of star-crossed lovers, mm-hmm. uh, describing you know a young man and a young woman in Buchat, Agnon's hometown, uh, the early years of the twentieth century. Boy meets girl, boy falls in love with girl, boy can't have girl because his parents don't approve of the shidduch. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a mismatched social order. Mm-hmm. He's from a well-to-do shopkeeping family. She's a poor orphan. Uh, it's not going to go. His mother's not going to allow him to marry her. And he goes mad. He goes insane. It's not clear what the source of his insanity is. And Agnon always loved to uh, pull the reader along, pointing in multiple directions, and the story uh, uh, sustains at least four interpretations. Does he go crazy, you know, just simply out of lovesickness? Does he go crazy because there's something genetic going on? And this is a time already where, where 
uh, I mean, Agnon was already well acquainted with Freud, mm -hmm. but the world that he's depicting would have already been familiar with Freud and psychoanalysis on the outskirts of their their reality. Right? Does he go crazy because in a, some previous generation, one of his ancestors had insulted a rabbi who put a curse on the family that in every generation somebody would go mishuga, which is what happened. Now, are they, if you see a family where in every generation somebody suffers from some ailment, so the modern reader understands that there's something genetic going on. But maybe there's something mystical going on. Maybe this is the rabbi's curse coming back to get you. Or is he not crazy at all? Is he, is he just pretending in order to avoid the draft to the Austro-Hungarian army, which every good Jewish boy wanted to avoid? So it sustains all these these multiple interpretations. Mm -hmm. um, it's a story that's set in a very particular time and place, but it it's universal. Mm -hmm. It's it's uh, it's it's going to speak to everyone. It's going to speak to every in the in the in the forward to the new edition, which uh, which we put out in the series. Uh, I wrote a little uh, essay about first encountering the book as a as a student here in Yeshiva College, uh, having suffered a devastating heartbreak. And quite by coincidence, I, I encountered the, the book, not knowing what it was about. But, you know, suffering that kind of uh, heartbreak you can only suffer as a, as a sophomore in college. Was that by getting a B or was that in a relationship? <laughs> in a romantic context. I understand. And, and here's this book about, and you read it in your 20s and you see one thing. And then I read it again in my 30s, already a young, married, happily married uh, man. And you see it quite differently. And then coming back to it again 10 years later in my 40s, you know, in the context of teaching it and then preparing the new edition. And you see it even to, it really, Agnon once said that any, any story or any book not worth reading twice probably wasn't worth reading the first time. And you really see the greatness of uh, work like this, that it's a work that you can keep coming back to again and again. And each time it provides new insight, and each time you bring new insight to it and see see it differently, see it somehow. It's 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 that it's that rich and, and multifaceted, mm -hmm. uh, and that's why I think it still has these enduring these enduring uh, messages. Uh, for, again, for us, I think it it's uh, particularly resonant mm -hmm. because of the world he's depicting and because of the challenges that he's depicting. Mm -hmm. uh, he's depicting questions of of faith. Uh, and again, he's not the guide for the perplexed, but he's aware that the old world of simple faith is not something that we can take for granted today, and that even the faithful of today can't be like the simple Jew of old, because there's no such thing as simple faith anymore. Faith has to be earned uh, in ways that it didn't in the, in the pre-modern era, and that's, I think, something that's particularly relevant to us as it was maybe uh, 80 years ago when he, he wrote the novel that uses this as its great theme. Mm -hmm. um, and I dare say it'll continue to be relevant for many years to come. Does one read Agnon or does one learn Agnon? Is yeah. learning Agnon learning Torah in some broad mm. sense? Well, there's two different questions. I think you first have to read Agnon. 
nobody's going to come to love Agnon by, you know, taking it apart, disassembling it, uh, you know, like some kind of jigsaw puzzle in the hunt for sources. And when someone reads Agnon, you should read it as a literary experience. And in our editions, there are no footnotes. There are annotations in the back, but the text itself is clean because nobody should be invited to read a piece of literature, you know, the way that we study a page of Talmud. You understand I'm not denigrating a page of Talmud. They're different experiences. Uh, but the inquisitive mind wants to know more about this. So that's why we provide the, the apparatus of the annotations. Once you've encountered it as a, as a literary text, so you can also then go into that kind of, and there have been a number of very interesting halachic analyses of uh, sugyot, as it were, that are raised in, in Agnon's, uh, in Agnon's uh, work, um, uh, you know, examining what he was doing. And he always aimed to be authentic in the presentation of uh, halachic material, halachic realia, uh, as, it, uh, as, it, as it went in. Um, so you could also engage with it on, on that level, but it's a different level of, of engagement. And, uh, you know, I recommend that people should get into Agdon through reading it. It's a piece of literature. You should experience it and enjoy it as a piece of literature. And then the things that interest you, the things you want to pursue further. So there are all types of resources and, and ways of, uh, ways of doing it, ways of unpacking it, ways of uh, getting to the, to the source material. Uh, obviously there are a lot in the, uh, in the, uh, hundred years or so of uh, literary criticism of Agnon, uh, this has been a fruitful subfield and a lot of these things have already been researched. But uh, we're constantly finding new things, right? We're constantly, uh, uh, you know, there are certain works like this, you know, uh, 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 Alice in Wonderland, mm -hmm. you know, which is a text in a very different way, which mm -hmm. is replete with these types of hidden things that uh, Lewis Carroll uh, put in. Uh, there's still discoveries mm -hmm. in, uh, oh, that's what he means here. This is what this, why he uses that word there. This was the realia. That's the source he's drawing on. Uh, and and we, we find new things every day. Uh, uh, new new insights in, in Agno, new uh, connecting connecting dots. Uh, uh, you know, the the, the the research is is very rich and deep, and uh, not everything that gets published uh, do I agree with. I don't have to agree mm -hmm. with it. Uh, sometimes it's uh, clearly wrong, but um, and sometimes sometimes the errors come through people who are not fluent mm -hmm. in in the rabbinic texts, who don't know mm -hmm. uh, uh, don't know them, and are trying to interpret something without. The knowledge uh, mm -hmm. that that Agnon had, and Agnon did have a profound. Uh, he was he was a Talmid Chacham mm -hmm. of the top order. Uh, he maintained an ongoing, lifelong engagement with the uh, Talmud Torah, uh, classically defined, uh, both because that was the act of a, of a religious Jew, uh, but also because uh, it was kind of. Uh, you know the way that uh, he sharpened his sharpened his quill. Uh, that's that was the raw material that had to be put into the machine in order to to put out the uh, to put out the, the stories that were processing mm -hmm. uh, all of that. So you can engage with that as well. Is reading Agnon Talmud Torah? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, like Lamai Nafkamina. Can you read it in the bathroom? I was afraid to ask, yeah. but since you went there, right. let's go there. Right. 
So, you know, once upon a time, I used to ask such questions. I don't ask such questions anymore. I remember when I was a student in Yeshiva to Miftar in Rabbi Bravender's Yeshiva, I was reading Rabbi Soloveitchik's Halachic Man. So I understood that when you read Halachic Man, the Talmud Torah meter is running. Now, I also understood that when you're reading a page of, you know, it's like in the taxi. When the taxi's moving, the meter runs fast. When you're in, stopped in traffic, it's still running, but it runs a little slower. When you get out of the taxi, the meter stops running. That is it. Like you learn a page of Gemara Rashi and Tosfos, like the meter's running fast, the Talmud Torah meter. And when you're doing other things, it's running, but it's running slow. But, you know, you start, you're 18 years old and you're reading Halachic Man, and on the first page he mentions ontology. So it's a showstopper. Sure. You don't know what ontology Applause is. Pause for dictionary. So you have to look it up. So this is in the days before uh, cell phones and internet. And, but I was in a yeshiva that, you know, kept dictionaries in the base medrash. And I don't just mean the gesture. Yeah. And even had uh, some type of uh, one-volume encyclopedia of philosophy. I don't know what it was doing, but it was there in the base medrash. So you go and you look up ontology. So when you go up and you look ontology, what, what's happening to the Talmud Torah meter? Is it still running? Is it running slower? Is it, is it on pause? Is it on pause? Is it? So I, I go to the Rosh Hashiva and I ask Rabbi Bravender. And he, he looked at me with a kind of pitying glance. And he said, Sachs, don't worry. One day you'll grow up. <laughs> I didn't understand what he meant then. Now I understand that he meant there are things that are worth doing. And if there are things that are worth doing, they should be done and they should be done well and they should be done seriously and they can contribute to our essence as thinking religious beings, to, to borrow a phrase uh, that I picked up from my friend and teacher, uh, Rabbi Shalom Garmi, uh, and that's the essence of, of who we are. Um, obviously, everything has to be done in proportion. Like when I tell somebody, you know, skip Gemara Seder to, to learn Agnon, obviously not. It seems to me that we make time for all types of things. <laughs> Agnon is the least problematic uh, of, of many of them. Uh, but I do think that it can contribute to our larger existence as 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 Jewishly engaged people, as religiously engaged people, as spiritual people, uh, you know, in, in the very many ways that uh, that Ravar and Lichtenstein outlined in 50 years of writing and rewriting, you know, the same essay about what we get from our encounter with general studies, what we get from our encounter particularly with, uh, with literature, uh, how it can contribute to the, the religious life, uh, what inestimable boons can be gained from that. And Agnon, interestingly, uh, Rabbi Lichtenstein, who was the greatest proponent of the value of literature in, uh, in a religious life, w was not a reader of uh, Hebrew literature. Mm. He, he didn't read Agnon. He mm -hmm. wasn't, you know, he had his own bookshelf. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we can expand. We need not all, only limit ourselves to Milton. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and some people won't read Milton at all. And some people would try to read Milton and not be able to... Uh, to uh, generate from it what Rabbi Lichtenstein was able to generate, and they'll find it elsewhere in a different bookshelf. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and I think that's okay. And he, bringing up Rabbi Lichtenstein, he 
for example, invoked evoked his uh, his reading of Augustine to help us think about how Rabbi Akiva might have composed his own memoir of spiritual. Yeah. Well, he bemoaned the fact that that we don't have the confessions have of Rabbi Akiva and exactly. how interesting it would be if we were to have it. So presumably he read Augustine yeah, to yeah, make such yeah, yeah, such, a, such yeah, a comment. Yeah. So should modern Orthodox Jews be reading theologies of different religions? Are there limits to what one should look to for our own religious edification? Yeah, look, that's a, a question that takes us far afield, uh, not connected to Agnon, and it's been debated uh, uh, any variety of times, you know, Probably that conversation is still going on downstairs in the in the cafeteria. There's a sophomore in college that's thinking about this, and he's sitting with some older guy, and this is what they're talking. It's a conversation that was going on 30 years ago when I arrived here as a as a as a student. And, and someone uh, will probably walk over to that young man and say, "Grow up." <laughs> well, maybe. Uh, no, I, I mean I hope not. <laughs> I mean I, I hope that they'll they'll talk to them about it uh, and. Uh, Rabbi Bravender was not trying to uh, to shut down my my inquiry. He was just trying to, in his inimical way, uh, you know, convince me that uh, to, to think about it in a little bit of a less sophomoric uh, manner. Um, and uh, uh, you know, look, what what's in, what's out. I think, generally speaking, in these larger conversations about Torah umada and freedom of inquiry, and uh, I think we. We tend to have a, a broad bookshelf. The question isn't like, you know, is it kosher to read Augustine or to read, well, I don't know about Augustine, but there are plenty of other uh, Christian uh, authors, C.S. Lewis. Uh, Lewis, a more contemporary, you know, who, 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 who Rabbi Lichtenstein was also quite uh, fond of. You know, C.S. Lewis may be the only 20th century author that uh, <laughs> Rabbi Lichtenstein <laughs> read. I'm exaggerating, but he was, he was more focused in a different uh, century. Uh, C.S. Lewis... Uh, uh, you know, there's a lot to be gained, obviously, from reading uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, Christian writings. Um, how are you going to do it? When are you going to do it? Are you going to assign it to 10th graders to read? I don't know. That's a different question. It's a different question that cannot be divorced from larger political questions. Uh, and an educator has to act with, with wisdom and sensitivity and uh, – um, but in and of itself, is there value to these things? Certainly, clearly, clearly there is. But again, it's always a matter of proportion. And, uh, you know, our guide for all of these things has, has always been uh, Rabbi Lichtenstein's thinking about it, as well as the, the writings of, uh, of Rabbi Lamb, of, of Rabbi Carmi, of uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, of, of, so, many, of so many others. Um, a number of years ago, in a special edition of a tradition that was uh, dedicated to Rabbi Lichtenstein, which was meant to be in his honor, and unfortunately, bad timing, it uh, it ended up being a memorial volume. Uh, I, I wrote a piece which is titled something like, The Best That Has Been Thought and Said by Rabbi Lichtenstein About the Value of Literature. And I recommend that to the listener who's interested in what I do there. It's a, basically a bibliographical essay. What I set out to do was to look at the, literally the fifty years worth of bibliography from the uh, from the earliest his earliest essay on the topic up until his his final essay, to, and I I thought I would show how Rabbi Lichtenstein's you know thought and attitudes on these things had evolved. What's surprising is that there's no evolution at all. Uh, he had it all 
in the bag already at a very young age. He was he was younger than uh, than you or I were when he started uh, writing about these things, uh, and he had already developed for himself a very clear idea of of what the religious prophet is and the religious dangers uh, in uh, in the encounter with culture in general, literature in in specific, um, and uh, you know the essay that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm being facetious when I say it was one essay that he kept rewriting because there are different emphases and the different points of departure in in each in each entry on the on the bibliography. But uh, but it's this, if taken as a whole, the whatever it is, fifteen or eighteen essays uh, written over fifty years, if taken as a whole, um, you really do get a, a catalog of of. Uh, you know, one man and not just any man, one man's thinking on on these topics, and and sometimes from a more ideological position, a more philosophical position, sometimes a very practical. Uh, in some cases, he's talking to educators that are tasked with getting up in the morning and teaching in 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 day schools, um, and he was he was a, uh, attentive to that as as well to the the realia of rolling up your sleeves and doing the work of of education. Um, and uh, you know the reader doesn't need me. To, the listener doesn't need me to uh, to, to direct him on this because Gadol and Vitovi Mimeni have done it. I once had an occasion to uh, to interview Rabbi Lamb. He should be well uh, on the when his uh, volume Torah Umada was released, re-released a few years ago. For I sure. believe it was the twenty twentieth anniversary. I believe so. of, the, of the, and I had a small role in the in the bringing about that uh, publication of the 20th anniversary edition of Toru Mada, which, which had been released when I first came to the college. Mm. Um, you know, a, a phenomenally important work uh, for our conversation, for our, for our community. And I interviewed him, you know, about the book and about, you know, really his thinking on the topic of Toru Mada over all these many years. And I asked him that, uh, you know, Rabbi Lamb actually came uh, not from the world of the humanities, but from the world of the sciences. Sure. And Rabbi Lichtenstein comes to the conversation from the world of the humanities and, and literature. And I said here, Rabbi Lamb and Rabbi Lichtenstein, the two you know greatest uh, expositors of these these themes and the two greatest proponents of uh, their value, uh, come to it from these two different uh, realms of general studies. And I asked him, if the fact that he came from the sciences and Rabbi Lichtenstein came from the humanities led them in different directions or caused them to focus on different things, different themes, different topics. And he, he said, no, I was a little surprised. But he said, no, it doesn't matter. You can enter the conversation at, at any point. Not everyone is going to be uh, a poet. Mm. I remember here in college, uh, they used to have Biology for poets. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's still called that. You know, as if you were if you were sure. pre med, you took one kind of uh, study of sure. biology, and if you were if you were uh, you know studying English literature or history, sure. you took uh, the notorious uh, geology class rocks for jocks. Oh yes, I, uh, that's yeah, not offered here, of course. Oh, not here. Well, there are well, the, the sports teams are doing well here. <laughs> exactly. Um, that was not the case in my day. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, you know, but the point being that uh, you know you can come into the conversation at any point. Not everybody's going to be a poet. Not everybody's going to enjoy even the greatest of literature. But I think part of what we, 
the larger world of, of our yeshiva, of our university, uh, have been trying to do. And I consider myself part of this institution, even though I've been living in Israel 25 years. Uh, but whatever degree, I was f so instrumentally formed by my, by, by my experiences here. Uh, part of what we've been trying to do is to, is to, is to promote this, this argument that whoever you are, wherever you are, the idea that modern orthodoxy, Torah Umada, is this kind of elitist, intellectually elite endeavor, to a certain degree that's true because we expect a lot from our adherents and we expect you know, learning and literature and Torah and Mada and you know, and it's a it's a it's a heavy burden to carry, and we do so uh, we do so with joy, but we have to understand that not every member of the community, uh, you know, can uh, weather it with the same joy and enthusiasm, and we have to find ways for them. And I think you know some of the phenomena that we've seen uh, in the religious communities may be a response to the over intellectualization. That's the bread and butter of of our world. Uh, the kind of turn to neo Hasidism and other forms of uh, devotion that's present, even you know, even here in uh, in YU, um, you know, may be a corrective on on some of the excesses. But there's no doubt that part of the task of a Jew is an intellectual task, is a rational task, is to is to encounter text, is to decipher text, is to try to make sense of it and try to make sense of what it means for our lives. Um, and, you know, so that's, uh, that's uh, you know, part of the larger conversation about, uh, you know, what usually flies under the flag of this uh, slogan, Torah, Torah Umad. I think, I think Agnon has a, has a role to play here, but there's so many other things on the bookshelf as well. And if somebody, I can't imagine, but if somebody doesn't find that, uh, that value in reading Agnon, let him read something else. Let him learn something else. Let him let him encounter it in a, in a mathematics book or in who knows what. Jeffrey Sachs, thank you so much for this conversation and for your addition to the Jewish textual canon. Look forward to future works of yours in the years to come. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scroll Up, a Yeshiva University podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Anchor, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. This episode is produced by Stu Halpern and David Chabinski and edited by David Chabinski. Until next time.